Hannah. My husband is dead, dead a year now, dead since the 14th of March, 2009. So I lit him a candle. Then I let it burn. Because that's what you do with a yardside candle. You let it burn and burn until finally it burns itself out. Not that mine was a real yardside candle. Mine was simply a long burning candle from the new gift store in Dorchester. It won't last. The gift store, I mean. Filled as it is with overpriced knickknacks, my faux yardside candle included. It was the first time I had left a candle to burn all night. As a child, I had witnessed my mother do it. Every year she would light a candle on the anniversary of my grandmother's death. She would light it in the evening and she would leave it while we slept. And never once did the house burn down. It never even crossed my mind that it might. Then I had absolute confidence in the way of the world. Then I knew for certain that each year a yardside candle would simply burn all night and all day and then it would stop. Afterwards, when everything around me had burnt away, and everyone I had known was gone. I did not light a candle, not for any of them. I had people to mourn, that was true enough, but I didn't know when exactly they had died. And if I did not know that, how could I light a yardside candle on the anniversary of their passing? Instead, I determined to leave it all behind me, all the dead, all the misery, all the loss. I would make of myself something new, someone new. Welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast, sponsored by Pantera Press. Good Reading is a monthly magazine dedicated to books and reading and aims to help readers discover their next favourite book. You can find out more about the books discussed on today's podcast at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. Welcome back to the Good Reading Podcast. I'm Max Lewis, and today we're joined by Suzanne Leal, whose new book, The Deceptions, tells the story of wartime betrayal and family secrets that spans from the tragedy of the Holocaust all the way to contemporary Australia. Suzanne, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, I'm so pleased to be here, Max. Thanks for having me. So The Deceptions is based in part off a true story. Are you able to tell us a little bit about that story and how it drove the writing of your book? Yes, yes. Look, it, it, it takes me right back to the early 90s uh, when I was out of university and I was looking for a house to rent. We were in Tamarama and the house to rent was a duplex, which was side by side the landlord's house. It was a great position and I was really keen to get it. And uh, we did get it. And the landlords, as it turned out, were Jewish and Czech and Holocaust survivors. I became very close to them both, to Fred Perger and to Eva Perger. And after a while, Fred would tell me about what had happened to him during the war. Eva would too, um, but less comprehensively. They'd Mm. both been teenagers in a ghetto outside of Prague, and from there they'd been sent to concentration camps. And there was this one story when I was speaking to Fred that's never really left me in all the years. And Fred and Eva died in 2007 and 2008, and still this story kept at me. And this is briefly what the story is. When they were in the Theresienstadt ghetto outside of Prague, the detainees, the Jewish detainees there, were guarded, often not by SS officers uh, because 
there weren't many of them there all the time, but instead by Czech gendarmes, sort of Czech mm. soldier police figures. And Fred and Eva became friendly with one of them. The friendship emerged because uh, Eva's father had been a doctor and this gendarme had broken his arm and had set the arm for him. In return, the gendarme had offered to smuggle letters and parcels out of the ghetto and back into the ghetto. The problem was this. The gendarme was uh, a married man and in a relationship with one of the Jewish detainees. Uh, now, this was problematic because of the German laws of Rassenschande, which is race shame, which stopped any non-Jewish person during the war having any relationship with a Jewish person. So as a result of that relationship, he was arrested, the gendarme was arrested, and he was taken away. He returned after the war, but no one could tell me what had happened to the woman with whom he'd had, what was it, a relationship, mm. an interaction. And it was her story that most beguiled me. I wanted to know what had happened to this unnamed, unknown woman and had she survived, what had become of her life. I did some research, but I really didn't have names and I didn't have details. It was a story in fragments. And um, so what I did was that I turned to what I do best, I think, and I wrote it out in fiction. Your 2006 debut book, Border Street was also based on the story of those same neighbours that informed the deceptions. Would you consider those two books as sort of a companion piece with each other? It's interesting, isn't it? Um, it was very much a debut book in 2006. It's a, it's a book, Border Street, that remains close to my heart. And, and as you say, it is, it's a fictional account of uh, an older man and his younger tenant and their friendship and through that book weaves the story of Fred. Um, I, I think they are companion books. I think what happens is that the small story that Fred had told me in that book, or at least in the interviews that led to the book, stayed with me. And, and you know, when you write a book, for me at least, it takes a while and you've got to be really interested and you've got to be really curious and you've got to be really uh, unsatisfied to get it finished. And this was a story that kept me unsatisfied. What I've done, I think, which distinguishes it from the earlier book is um, when I made into fiction the character I've called Hannah, uh, I used as her journey, her wartime journey or her wartime detention, uh, what had happened to my landlady, my former landlady, Eva Perger. So where right. Eva was sent, Hannah was sent. Um, Hannah is in no way Eva, but um, it was something of a pilgrimage, I suppose, to put myself back into Eva's position as much as anyone can who is not there and who doesn't understand uh, what it could possibly have been like. But um, I had that information from Eva and I just wanted to know. And so when you say, are they companion pieces, I would say, I'd say yes. If the references in the back of the book are anything to go by, you also did quite an extensive amount of research for The Deceptions. 
Can you tell us a little bit about this process of research and any sources that were particularly fascinating or influential on the book? Yes, yes. Look, um, can I um, can I say first of all the Bible, well, Bible, or at least the encyclopedia of um, the ghetto of Theresienstadt is a book called Theresienstadt, which was written in the 1950s by H.G. Uh, Adler, who himself had been in the ghetto. Um, and it was in German. I, I studied German. I speak and I read German. But it's heavy going. Anyone who um, mm. who does read German, it's a heavy going language. So I was starting to um, labour my way through the German, and after you know, sixty years after its, uh, or almost sixty years after its um, publication, it was translated into English. Almost for me, it seemed. So I bought the um, the translated version. It's you know, it's about a thousand pages, and it's got everything in terms of how Theresienstadt worked. I also had help. I had help from other writers. Um, Bram Presser is a an Australian writer of Czech descent who's the author of the book, The Book of Dirt, and he was very helpful. He read an early manuscript and was very helpful, as was Leah Kaminsky, who's the author of The Hollow Bones, in um, checking my work and particularly as I'm not Jewish, uh, how my sensitivity and my accuracy uh, in issues pertaining to to Judaism. There's also lots of memoirs and uh, written by survivors of the Holocaust and they were extremely helpful. Zdenka Fandlova wrote a book called The Tin Ring, and I was lucky enough to meet her uh, three years ago in relation to a different project. And um, her book was um, was fabulous. I've also been in contact with a woman called Pia Christina Svenhart, who's a Swedish researcher who uh, compiled uh, works on Holocaust victims or survivors who had later been sent to Sweden. That was really useful. Um, Mm. In terms of the gendarmes, there's almost nothing. It was very, very little about the Czech gendarmes. Uh, It wasn't something I'd heard of before. (laughs) No, no, it's it's really... um, it was really hard to find information. Clive, Professor Clive Emsley is a UK scholar whose uh, specialty is gendarmes. So I looked at his book, but the Czech gendarmes is a very small subclass. I actually got in contact with him by email and, and he was really quite helpful. Probably more than anything, there's this short story by, again, a man who survived the the Holocaust, a writer called um, Arnošt Lustig, and anybody who's Czech who is um, listening um, might forgive my pronunciation, but he wrote a short story called The Gendarme, and in it he describes a gendarme who is... uh, at the border of the Theresienstadt ghetto, which is really a fortress town. It was built as a fortress town. Mm. And um, about how this gendarme treats him, whether he is going to uh, have him arrested or whether he is going to 
give him a second chance when he discovers contraband on him. It's a really compelling story. But, um, yes, you're right. I, mean, I just had to find whatever I could about the gendarmes. Um, in terms of the female character, Mahana, uh, that that was easier. I had a very clear view as to mm. how she was and the memoirs really helped me with that. Well, delving into those characters a little bit, you mentioned that Hana is based on um, on Eva's story, and then um, Karel is based on the um, the gendarme from that story, and then there's also Tessa and Ruth. Uh, what was the process of developing those other characters? Good. Just just quickly with Eva. Um... It is her geographical story. So it is her story, story. Uh, yeah. of being sent from Prague to Theresienstadt and on to Auschwitz and there, there on. Um, it's not it's not her. I mean, she was never yeah, involved with anyone. No, no, but it, it was really just so I would have the, the geographical um, ribbon mm. for it. And, and again, Carol, yes, you're right, is, is based on this unknown gendarme and how I imagined things might have turned out. There's a lot written about the Holocaust at the time, and I think as time has gone on, there's been um, a lot written by children of survivors of the Holocaust and now to grandchildren. And my interest in particular is the consequences of actions from the past into the future. So Mm. rather than focusing purely on Hannah and Carol's story during the war, I wanted to look at the ramifications. I wanted to look at what happens afterwards. So to do that, I wrote the book using four voices. So Carol, Hannah, Carol's granddaughter, Tessa, and um, the local Uniting Church minister, Ruth. And I did this for a number of reasons. The book's called The Deceptions, and it's called that for a reason because in everyone's story, there is a deception, there's a betrayal, mm. uh, there's a secret or there's a lie. And I wanted to look at the concept of deception and try and work out, is that always a bad thing, to deceive someone, to lie to someone? Is it always bad or are there some deceptions that are necessary? Are there some deceptions that are woven from love or from survival or from resilience or from hope? So Tessa is in her early 30s, and she's having an affair with her married boss. Clandestine and uh, her parents, and particularly her grandparents, would be um, horrified to discover this. I wanted to look into Tessa because I think it's tricky. I think it's tricky Mm. for a young woman to find herself in this position and try and work out how am I going to get out of this situation um, and do I want to? So that, that's her deception or her lie. The character of Ruth, Ruth's in her 40s. Uh, she's a Uniting Church minister. She's single. I'm really interested in women ministers. I think that uh, with the church, it's often been a case that ministers come as a package deal, generally male ministers, and they come with a wife and you get two for the price of one. What happens when you've got a woman who's single who has to carry the weight of her congregation on her own shoulders and who has no one to share that burden. She's also the only daughter of her father who is also, has been a minister and who's been really a mentor to her but who's now got Parkinson's and who is ailing, so Parkinson's disease. My dad 
was not a minister, but my dad was very much my mentor and he also had Parkinson's. I wanted mm. to, in doing Ruth's character, I wanted to look at her relationship with her father and I think I think Charlotte Wood's spoken about this as well. I think we often write about people who are elderly as being people who have very little to offer or, or at least where age is the main and infirmity is the main issue. When I when I was describing Ruth and her father, Harry, I wanted to debunk that and I just wanted to mm. show how useful um, people can be in all manner of infirmity or age or situation. And the stories of Karel, Tessa and Ruth are told through a third-person narrator, but Hannah's story is told through first-person. <laughs> what was the decision behind that choice? Uh, I don't know, Max. <laughs> um, <laughs> just one of those things where it just felt right? She's really strong. She's a really mm. strong character. For me, she is the backbone of the story. It is yeah. her story. And she came, I don't want to be too hocus-pocus about it, but she came to me in the first person. She came to me strong. Mm. Her voice was clear. Um, I didn't want to hide her uh, behind the third person. And I'm I'm with her. I'm, I'm with her as she gets sent from the ghetto onto Auschwitz, and I'm with her throughout the rest of that wartime. She's look. She's art. She's funny. She's clever. She's cutting, and uh, it just worked. And both in the past with Hannah's story and in the present with Tessa's story, many of the complications in the book come about through men with power taking advantage of the women who don't have power. And I guess many readers would create parallels between that and the whole discussions of consent and bodily autonomy that came around with the Me Too movement. Was that, was that something that, um, I guess, inspired that sort of direction? I think the Me Too movement has, su- has had such enormous ramifications throughout the world that mm. it's hard to have been hard for it not to figure in thoughts and writings and ideas. And, yeah, I do think power is a really interesting issue and how power is wielded. In terms of the relationship between Carol the gendarme and Hannah the detainee, there is very clearly a power dynamic where she's trapped mm. and he is her boss. And I wonder whether he actually even realises that because I would say that he, for him it is a love story, but I'm not sure that yeah. it is for her. And I think that that's where those issues of power and consent are most grey and most shadowy. And similarly with Tessa and her boss, um, you, there can be on one level the idea that she has a choice in this but does she? And I do think in what we're seeing reverberate around the world in terms of men with power and women with less, it's something to contemplate and something to think hard about. Mm. It is worth saying, though, that Hana also uses that situation 
with the with Gendarm, with Karel, to her advantage as well. As her mother says, she uses this this man who's infatuated with her to help her survive through through the ghetto. But this is what was interesting about the ghetto. So, as I understand it, so in the ghetto, um, people from different countries, Jew, Jewish people from different countries, were placed into the ghetto almost as a holding camp before later transportations out, many of them to Auschwitz. The Czech, and I was focusing on the Czech Jewish people, so my knowledge um, outside of that is less full. Um, but these people were in large, very creative, very intellectual, very dynamic. So you had writers within the, the, the Prague and the Czech Jewish community. You had famous composers. You had famous film directors. You had actors. You had musicians. And so in terms of the cultural dynamic, that was where the power was. They were the powerful ones. Mm. They were making the music. They were writing the um, the magazines. There was a secret magazine called Vedem. Um, they were uh, putting on the operas where they were allowed to. The gendarmes, as I understand it, who were coming in to guard them, were not, for starters, they weren't Jewish and they weren't from that milieu, as I understand it. Generally, they were from um, a more... Um, like a more working class milieu, either hmm. either a farming milieu um, or less intellectual. And so you've got a gendarme who, in my case, Carl, who's had a rural upbringing, who's had a, a close and, and uh, upbringing on a farm which is successful, comes to this ghetto and is blown away by the creative uh, input of the people that he's uh, overseeing and overseeing as gardeners, which particularly for Hannah, she's she's not very good at, and he's good at this. So, on one hand, he's showing her what to do because he can till the land that she has to do. But on the other hand, he's not her equal in terms of cultural history or intellectual um, development, and so that's where the power dynamic is less obvious. I mean, who is in charge? She's, like you say, she can manipulate him, but it's manipulation for survival. On the other hand, he has power, physical power over her, but he's beguiled by her. And it was that dynamic I found most interesting. And the deception also shares some themes with your previous book, The Teacher's Secret in that they both deal with secrets and betrayals and things that we hide to survive. What is it that fascinates you about these themes? Ah, look, you're right. I, I like secret. I like, I'm interested in secret. I'm interested in lies. I think more than anything, I'm, I write about hope and resilience when times are difficult. Uh, mm. And I've been thinking about this recently, I suppose, for obvious reasons. And I was trying to work out what does unite my body of work. Um, I'll just go back a little bit. When I, as well as being a writer, I'm a lawyer, and um, what I do is that I run hearings in a tribunal. And I used to be on the Refugee Review Tribunal. Now I'm on a state-based tribunal, and I work out whether people should be allowed to work with children, uh, whether they should be allowed to have a gun license, um, whether they should have guardianship of a particular person. So all these issues where you've got to make a decision and you've got to make findings as to where the truth lies and where it doesn't. And I think in all that, you're dealing with information that's not always open or not almost given to you. And for me, 
in any story, there is the story that is publicly presented and then the private truth behind it. And I think even mm. the question of truth is an odd one. I think the fact that we expect truth is optimistic because there are, there are many truths. And I think perhaps that's why I've tended to write, at least in the last two books, in a couple of voices, because the truth can be refracted and it's only through dealing with different voices that you find where there is a unity or a kernel of what we might call truth. And the other thing that the Deceptions shares with The Teacher's Secret is that it's told through multiple perspectives, multiple POVs. What do you enjoy about this style of writing? Uh, I like being lots of people, <laughs> I suppose. Yeah. Um, I like looking at a story through different perspectives. Um, the Teacher's Secret, yes, is about the story of a teacher who is – um, forced into early retirement following allegations that are made uh, against him, which may or may not be true. I mean, that's for, for the reader in, in, in great measure. Um, more than that, it's a story of a community, and in a community there's more than one person. So what I wanted to look at was how this turmoil for one man has ramifications throughout that community and where their own tumultuous times lie and where they find hope or where they find resilience. And I think um, to bring it together makes, for me at least, a book more rounded. And, and I, I know it gives the readers some work to do, like if, but, you know, but, but I'm, I'm hope as a reader I like to work, I like to be involved, I like to try and work out what the connections mm. are going to be. So I suppose it's writing out something of a puzzle and hopefully, um, if I've done my job properly, I take the reader into each character so that by the time that you see how it all fits together, you are with each character. And, um, yeah, look, it's just how it came. And the, the, the book I'm writing now is just one voice. So that'll be interesting, I think, to see how that, 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 that compares. And that kind of multiple perspective storytelling, does it come with its own kind of brand of challenges that you have to, to overcome during the writing and editing process? Uh, look, I think what you want to do is not confuse the reader. So I suppose too, mm. too many voices um, uh, can sometimes um, be too many. I think, uh, look, I, I think I think I manage it in The Teacher's Secret. I think The Deceptions is four voices and because they're so interrelated, there's we know Hannah, we know Carl, and then we know the relationships. I think that can work. I think it's it's probably um, there are some difficulties in making a discrete voice, so making sure that the voices don't bleed into one another. Um, mm. Hannah solved that by being in the first person. Carl is an older man, and I think that the voice changes accordingly. Um, so I suppose you just got to. Uh, it's not like writing different books, but it almost is because you've got to get your head from one person's voice, work out, remember what they know and what they don't when you've got a story that's been you know, that's going to unite and and keep it clean. I mean, not, not clean in terms of, you know, language, but just <laughs> keep it, keep, keep, keep the voices from bleeding. Keep all the, all the strands together. That's it, yeah. that's it, yes. And looking at the book overall, what would you like readers to, to take away from it? Oh, Max, you know, it's really, really, really tricky times. I mean, who would have thought this? 
remember my um, my agent said to me, gosh, the book, you know, it's all going so well, you know, great selling, great, you know, early reviews, great, you know, the publicity is going well. What could possibly go wrong? Mm. And um, the world seems to be collapsing. And, of course, um, that is very worrying and very concerning and with good reason. But I think if I have a job as a writer at all, it is to observe, to watch, to remind people that the world has been in turmoil before and, um, you know, in, in, in my, you know, in the area of the Second World War, I, I can't compare it obviously and I can't compare uh, the tragedy of it all. But um, the world moves on and this will pass. Uh, times will be better a uh, hopeful thought is well placed, resilience is needed. So I think, if anything, I, particularly in this book, I would hope that the reader gets from it that there is hope and resilience to be had even in the most difficult of times. You mentioned your book that you're writing now. Are you able to give us any hints on what it might be about? Yeah, yeah. Look, just, just um, briefly, I've, 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 my agent always tells me not to um, not to take the energy out of it <laughs> by talking too much. But just briefly, it's um, first person and it's about a quite peculiar woman who's brought up in a fundamentalist uh, Protestant church and what happens when her when allegations are made against her husband that she believes aren't true and uh, what she does about it. So it's probably, you know, like if you said Border Street and um, the Deceptions are a, a companion pieces, perhaps this one is a companion piece to The Teacher's Secret. Mm. Um, it takes place in a secondary school rather than a primary school. But I just wanted to look at, um, again, difficult times um, from the perspective of a woman who is really an outlier and what happens. Mm, and it would have its own kind of power balances, I guess, and that kind of Protestant mindset of a relationship as well. So interesting. So interesting, the research I've been doing for this. And I, and I, I, like, I like who she is. I, li- I like her voice. Um, I feel as um, excited writing about her as I did uh, for obviously very, very different reasons, but um, in getting the, the voice of Hannah. You know, when someone comes comes to you quite clearly mm. and you know what they're going to think and you know what they're going to be doing. So it's, um, fingers crossed, and that's probably all I should say about it, it's, um, it will progress in a similar vein. Well, that sounds absolutely fascinating. Suzanne, thank you for joining us today. Oh, thank you so much for the time, Max. I really, really appreciate it.